What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bolin. And we've got a topic today that is kind of one of those that we follow along with an article that's online so our listeners can, can I don't know, get a, a good grasp of what we're talking about just by following along if they want to. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be an article from Jalopnik. And uh, Jalopnik wrote about, and this is a while ago, it's an, it's an older article from 2010, but it caught your eye this week, and you, you suggested that we do this, right? Yeah, because this article is about some Jalopnik readers who submitted their favorite obscure cars. And you and I are both um, constantly fascinated by strange one-offs or uh, concept cars or even cars that for some reason aren't really well-known in the U.S. or the world at large. Yeah, we love those. We love the story of like the... Uh what, what, what was the Heinz vehicle? What was that one? I can't oh, remember. the uh, Corsair? The Corsair, that's right. The Phantom Corsair yeah. and, and vehicles like that. We love things like that, the Scarab vehicles. and mm-hmm. you know Just so many different unusual vehicles. And we've got a, another group of 10 here that were, as you mentioned, suggested by uh, readers of Jalopnik. And the way they did it was kind of cool. It was like a um, – it all started with like a question. You know, it's a question of the day type thing. Like, what's the most obscure car? And then they kind of listed one. The, the writer, Matt Hardegree – Listed his favorite obscure car. It was called a, uh, I think it was called a Deutsche Bonnet or something like mm. that, right? Deutsche, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's a, uh, a French car. It's a racing car. And he gave a little bit of a history and what made it really interesting and unique and, and strange and in all its different ways. And he said, now that's mine. What's yours? And he sent out this, uh, this kind of an all a call for everybody to write yeah. in and say what your favorite is. And then they called together everything and they decided that, you know, these were the winners and, Winners, these top ten. I gotta say, it's a solid list because, you know, initially we looked through and there's not a whole lot of information and a lot of background information about the vehicles. I know uh, that uh, there's a good photo of each one mm-hmm. and there's um, um, a, a title on each one that says what makes it awesome and what makes it obscure on each one. And that's about it. Yeah, in a small paragraph, and it's you know some interesting little tidbits. But then we went a little bit deeper and found quite a bit more information about each one of these. So we're gonna add a lot to this article if mm-hmm. uh, if you're following along. Yeah, and Scott, let me just say that when whenever you and I do an article thing or we take a look at a list, um, 
First, it can be dangerous if we just make our own list because we will go on. We have our views, and I, I enjoy doing those episodes a lot. Um, I also enjoy working with another article that is solid because sometimes, and listeners, uh, some of you have written in and told us that you, you enjoy it when one of us has a beef or a bone to pick with, um, with a list, but Sometimes, man, I just can't get on board with a couple of things. And like when we're doing car trends, uh, there were, you know, we have our own issues with some of that. Sure. But this list here is pretty, is pretty solid. And I, I am not ashamed to say that I learned a lot of stuff I didn't know just by digging deeper into some of these models. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's something for everybody to learn, really. I mean, and there was more to it than what we're going to even share today. So mm-hmm. if you want, you know, dig in deeper to these things, even, you know, just do a keyword search and then just go from there. Cause basically that's all we did. And then we found out some of the more interesting stuff that wasn't in the article mm-hmm. that we're going to share with you. And then again, like every one of, you know, our podcasts that we do, there's, there's, you know, a couple of hours that we could talk about each one of these probably. <laughs> We're not going to do that, but each one of these 10 vehicles, they all have their own story. They all have their own history. They all have their own um, angle, I guess, yeah. on, you know, where where they fit in history. Oh, and uh, let's just get right into it. Now, Scott, you and I, you know, we like cars and uh, we like innovation, pretty open-minded. Sure. And uh, I'm sure that you're you're the type of dude, you're a forward-thinking guy. I'm sure that you're the type of guy who's, started to get into a car, you open the car door and you think, ah, man, why do I need four of these? You know, four doors. Why do you need four doors? Why do you need two doors? Yeah, I like two doors, but uh, I see what you're going, where you're going with this one, because this car has an unusual entry system, right? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name. The 1967 Mose Ostentatien, right? Close? Close, no. I think. What, what do you have for it? Uh, I think you're right. <laughs> you're, I'm just going to call it the opera sedan. We'll call it the opera sedan. Uh, so 1967 for uh, a little over $19.5,000 in 67 uh, Mula, you could have um, you could have this vehicle that honestly looks completely different from everything. The the folks who made this. They had this idea that you should just have access to this sedan via one long door in the back. So like a hatchback that is a door and goes the length of the car. This is such a strange looking hatch, I guess, that opens up with these giant struts uh, on either side. And I guess you would you would make your way from the back of the vehicle up a small staircase. Right. Carpeted staircase. Carpeted staircase all the way to the front of the vehicle. Now, you said you said nineteen thousand dollars in what year? 1967. 1967. Well, price adjusted. That's about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. So you get an idea that this is a high end vehicle, right? Yeah. And I got to say, man, I love that you do the the inflation calculator uh, because it's it's such a it's such a strange thing to realize how the value of money has changed. I can't take credit for this one, Ben. It was right in the article. Yeah. But but I normally do that, and you know I'm, I'm promise I'll bring that back later on if we if we can think about it as we go along here because some of these cars have outlandish prices. Um, but but I was mentioning that you know this is a very luxurious vehicle. You know, along the lines right. of like a Rolls Royce or a Bentley, mm-hmm. something like that. Yep. Right. Well. Some of these, uh, some of these options that you could get in this vehicle <laughs> yeah. were just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they had gold inlaid panels and refrigerators. Uh-huh. Oriental rugs. Oriental rugs was another one, I think. Um, you could get, t- <laughs> um, what was the other thing? Oh, there were some other really strange oh, things. Um, yeah, you, it had, uh, let's see, we said the refrigerator. You, you uh, know what? I'm thinking of another vehicle that's coming up. Um, 
But I, I want to mention that it was also a Mose vehicle, so we're going to talk about that in just a second. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. But um, I'll tell you about some other unusual things. Oh, it could be customized heavily. Oh, very heavily customized. It, this is one of those things that almost like a bespoke vehicle mm-hmm. where you could, you could custom order something and Mose would create it for you. And you think, okay, Mose may have been a, uh, a manufacturer that, you know, was around for a short time. They mm-hmm. were around from, they were around from 1967 until 1979. So it was a significant run for them, I guess. That's a, a good 12 years. Um, but they only made two models of vehicles and the, the re- reported production was supposed to be only about three to four cars per year. However, of this vehicle that we're talking about, this opera sedan, yeah. only one car was ever built. Ah, yes. And that car died and returned. Uh, see, okay, well, before I go any further, I just have to say the, this vehicle had a truck engine too. It had an international harvester engine, which people are going to, it, it'll come in later when you, when you wonder about this. But, uh, so the opera sedan, the one existing vehicle, um, was in just piss poor condition. For a long time, it was not maintained. It wasn't safe in a museum or anything until after almost 20 years of sitting in storage. Some uh, high schoolers, of all people, saved this car. Yeah, this is really weird. But in 2009, two Wisconsin high school groups gathered together, you know, grouped together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from two different high schools, I guess it was like the auto shop guys got together, you know, guys and girls got yeah, together and said, we're going to restore this. It was a project, a class project, really. And their job was to restore uh, this this Mohs opera sedan back to original condition, and that's exactly what they did. I mean, incredible! They, they did a great job with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really really gaudy the way it looks, but it's exactly the way that it came from the Mohs factory in 1967. Right, because this one opera sedan was Bruce Mohs' personal car, mm-hmm. and uh, he, one of his the only reason the kids got to restore it was because one of his friends, a guy named Fred Byer, uh, B Y E R. Mm-hmm. Uh, Got to, uh, got the schools together and coordinated this to get it fixed up in time for the 2009 Iola car show in Iola, Wisconsin. What a weird looking car. I mean, no door, no, <laughs> no doors, doors at all. That one giant hatch. You got to go up a staircase that's carpeted, of course, mm-hmm. with the oriental rugs inside and the refrigerator. Um, but there's another vehicle that we mentioned just briefly. And this is the one that I was just hinting at with, oh, more, yeah. with more features that I wanted to mention at the time for right. the opera sedan. It's called the Safari car. And the safari car, this isn't number nine or anything. This is also another Moe's vehicle that I stumbled across. Mm-hmm. And safari car was, uh, was, um, introduced in 1972. So just after, you know, the company started production, maybe th- three or four years later. And it had an unusual door system as well. Um, in that it, you would open this one giant door on the side of the vehicle. You would grab the hatch, I guess, or not hatch, maybe the, the giant side door. Sure. And pull it out towards you and then lower it down and to the left or right or whichever direction it was. Pull and slide mechanism. Exactly, yeah. And then you would climb in through this giant door opening on the side of the vehicle. So they had a thing for unusual doors on these cars, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these giant weird doors on this. So that was kind of their thing. But that's not the strangest part of this whole thing, Ben. What's the strangest part, man? You know this makes me angry. <laughs> the this exterior panels, the exterior panels were upholstered in naugahyde, which is a type of vinyl that was stretched over foam, uh, foam padding. So this is a, a, a vehicle that has, you know, I guess uh, what you would normally use on the inside of the vehicle, you know, right. the, the naugahyde over foam on the outside of the vehicle. It's a padded vehicle, the whole thing. I just feel that that is wildly impractical, but maybe I'm not the target audience. Oh, I have to make a correction too. What's that? Um, 
I think the way we were speaking about the opera sedan may have sounded like it was the only single one ever made. It's the only one around now because they had a couple of other oh, did they? models. Oh, yeah. okay. Didn't yeah. know that. I thought, uh, I thought only one was, uh, was ever built, but only I guess only one, one, one exists. Got it. Right. Okay. Understood. So, um, the, the last couple things about this, uh, the safari car that I want to mention yeah. is that it had a retractable hardtop design, which is unusual. I mean, to begin with. Um, also had an aluminum body, which again, unusual, mm-hmm. but it had that Naga hide covering. So that was, right. uh, made it, I'm sure that made it really, really stiff and, and able to withstand any kind of impact. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Right. That's um, why people wear football gear <laughs> and the options. Now the options get this, Ben. Yeah. I was, I was kind of hinting at this with the uh, opera car. Yeah. Um, you could get a television, which was really unusual back Amazing. then. Amazing. I mean, imagine how big a, this is back when they were building televisions in wooden cases. Remember that? Right. Because the tubes, the cathode ray tubes were so big. Exactly. Yeah. They were giant pieces of furniture that you'd have in your house. I mean, just go to your grandma's house and take a look around. That's what, <laughs> that's what she's still got. Right. Uh, four wheel drive. Of course you'd get four wheel drive in this thing. Two-way radios, which were pretty unusual at the time. Sure. And a butane furnace that you could get inside the vehicle. Now, that seems to me like a bad idea, but you could have a butane furnace inside your safari car. Well, that's why all the exterior fabric is not on the interior. What a strange, strange <laughs> bit of history that Moe's vehicle is. I, I you know, I got to say, though, the some of the features I really enjoy, and some of those features are way ahead of their time. And if you're doing a search, it's M-O-H-S, Moe's. Right. Yeah. And uh, look up Moe's Opera Sedan, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about, and then Safari Car is not far behind. And that's Safari Car with a K. Yeah. Um, okay, so number nine, we get to... Uh, Something that we get to a character who's pretty familiar to us over here on the show, and that's Earl the Madman Muntz, the uh, key player in the Muntz Car Company. And that brings us to number nine, the 1951 through 1954 Muntz Jet. Yeah, that's right. And there's a, you know, just to self-promote here, I guess, we have a How Stuff Works article on this exact vehicle, the 1951 to 54 Muntz Jet. And you can look that up there, and there's a lot of good background information on this yep. one as well. Um, but this is, I mean, this really comes down to kind of the wacky salesman character, the businessman, the engineer. He was an engineer, Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually was a, a pioneer in automotive electronics and radio specifically. I think he was the one who developed, um, I think I read this somewhere, the four-track cassette system, which was the predecessor to the eight-track cassette yeah. system. Yeah, wow. So am I saying that right, four-track? Yeah, four, yeah, yeah, you're right. It preceded. preceded the eight-track. That's correct. And um, I think he was working heavily in that as well. So um, this uh, this Madman Muntz character, I mean, he, I think he died in 1987, which would have put him at about age 73 when he died. Yeah. But he wanted to build a, a sports car with what he said were jet-like um, contours to it. So it had that like a, a futuristic look to it, I guess. But he wanted a giant V8 in it. So he ended up yeah. putting a, um, I think it was a Lincoln V8 that he ended up with in this thing. Um, it was a, I guess. Yeah, he went through a couple though. You could say it was America's first high performance personal luxury car, but you know, the one who likes to use that personal luxury car, uh, term, wasn't that Ford with the Thunderbird? Yeah. I believe it was. Uh, but yeah. this predated the Thunderbird. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that. A full seven years. Um, and interestingly enough, for people who are longtime listeners, you guys may have remembered some of our earlier stuff on, uh, Frank Curtis and Curtis Craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madman Muntz and Curtis or Frank Curtis uh, have a long business relationship, and the Muntz Jet actually 
comes from a lot of its DNA is from uh, the Curtis Craft Sport. Yeah, and you know what? This car was fast. This was yeah. for its day. It was fast, and I'll tell you how fast it competed with the Jaguar XK120, which, uh, which I mean, was a, a stellar sports car at the time. I mean, it was at at the time that was a quick car. That was a an agile car. Now I think uh-huh. they said that you know it was about even when they took off. Eventually, the Munster Jet took it. You know, as far as the top speed went. But I do believe I think the Jaguar outhandled the Munster oh, because it was a bigger vehicle. When you see a, a photo of the Munster Jet, you'll understand exactly yeah. what we're talking about. Um, very limited production run. I mean, and actually, there are no production records that remain from this vehicle, so they don't know how many were actually built. But they went to the source himself. They went to you know the the Madman Munster and asked him how many he built, and he said it was around three hundred and ninety four. That's yeah. a pretty specific number. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously, it's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice too, because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource, and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com/papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically, have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. And he also said that they lost about $1,000. <laughs> the cars were manufactured at a loss. So he, he built 394 and he lost $1,000 on each one of those cars that he built is what he thinks. So it wasn't a it wasn't a winning effort on his part, but they say that you know this guy, man, isn't this guy, isn't this the one they said that he had he had like raised and then lost several fortunes over his life? I mean, it was yeah. like time and time again he would become a millionaire and then he'd lose it all, and he'd become a millionaire and lose it, it all. And I think it happened often to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just one of those guys that was had his hands in everything. It was pretty interesting. So um, that one, you know, aside from looking up the vehicle itself and just seeing some photos. Take a look into um, Earl Madman Months and just see what he's all about because <laughs> yeah. he's an interesting character. And I think uh, I got to tell you that the the car itself 
seems fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it's just a shame that they were. Yeah, aluminum body, fiberglass mm-hmm. top, that big V8. I mean, the Lincoln V8. Um, 33, 331 cubic inch, right? Yeah, it's a, it was a. Yeah, oh, a, no, 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 I'm wrong. That was the Cadillac engine they had in there before, but then they substituted. They put in a, v, a Lincoln. Went with a bigger yeah. bigger V8 from the Lincoln. Got it. All right. Yeah, it's a, it's an impressive car all around, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on to number eight on our list. How about that? Yes, sir. Number eight's a little more recent. Yeah. I'd say, um, not, not completely recent, but it's something that I would be willing to bet that not many people have seen one of these ever. It is the 1985 to 1990 Owasso Pulse. Yes. And if you say, Oh yeah, the Owasso Pulse, then give yourself a pat on the back, guys and gals, because you are one of the few people who really knows about this vehicle. Um, if you have not seen it, Save yourself some time. That's O W O S S O and check it out immediately. Um, you know what though, Scott? I think a lot more people have seen this than they, they realize and they just don't know the name of it. Really? Yeah. Maybe you're watching a Coors commercial ways oh, back. Oh yeah. Maybe it has been featured in a Coors, Coors uh, commercial, a beer commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, when, what, I mean, do you know roughly when that was? Was it in the 1990s? I would guess when this happened. Uh, yeah. I think, I think it's late eighties. Late eighties when it was actually in production. I'm He's guessing. Probably trying to start something up, trying yeah, to get it going. I'm but, guessing. uh, the history on this one, this is built by a guy, a prototype was built by, I think his name is, um, Jim Bead. Mm-hmm. And the prototype was built in something like 1980, and it was called the BD200. It's like an enclosed motorcycle that has the side skirts, you know, the mm-hmm. um, um, uh, outriggers. Stability. Almost. Yeah, outriggers. I call them outriggers, but they're but they're permanently in place. It almost looks like tiny wings. Yeah, yeah, it looks like tiny wings. And uh, outrigger, of course, we say that just to show that they they give balance to the vehicle mm-hmm. and stability that it would not ordinarily have. Basically, it looks like there's a jet that is on the ground, a tiny jet. Think of, think of like the Jetsons or something. Mm-hmm. And it has, uh, just a couple of wheels that might as well be landing gear. Yeah. Stubby, stubby jet with, with no big wings and it's missing yeah. its tail. Yeah. It, but you're in the canopy. The whole canopy thing is there and that's really cool looking. Yeah. Uh, the one that's in the photo here is, uh, painted like a bumblebee, which is kind of funny, but I've seen other ones that are, have different paint jobs. They look, uh, pretty neat, really. They're kind of a cool vehicle. Um, I just, I've never seen one of these in person or in, you know, in a museum or anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I, it's got kind of an unusual story, not, not crazy unusual, mm-hmm. but, but just unusual that, you know, it started in about 1980. Um, I think the, the molds were created to build something that he called, uh, that Jim called the Light Star, uh, which was built in Scranton, Iowa initially. And then production moved to Owasso, Michigan. Um, which they call the Pulse vehicle. So that's when um, the Owasso name comes in. It's from Owasso, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And then later, the uh, the Lightstar and the Pulse vehicles are really similar. They're not exactly the same. So if you see one of the early Lightstar vehicles from the from the Iowa production, uh, they're going to be a little different in you know the engine that they have, the headlights, mm-hmm. um, you know some of the the winglets. I think the design is just a little bit different on the winglets. And uh, some of the venting, I think, is a little bit different. But other than that, you're going to look at the vehicle either way, whether it's a Light Star or a Pulse, and say, yeah, that's an Owasso Pulse, probably, if you know it by that name. Um, ah. Strange. I mean, it's a road-going jet, really. Yeah. Uh, but it's also kind of like this motorcycle-type vehicle. Um, it's just a, it's a really unusual thing. And the guy has aviation history, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his other you know business dealings are all in airplanes. You know, From when I looked up his information online, 
his biography information. Yeah, kit planes and stuff. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah, he builds his own planes uh, out of his garage or wherever, you know, and then eventually moves them to production, you know, because he builds the prototypes and then he sells the idea. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's the way that works. I'm sure there's a lot more complexity to it than that. But uh, Jim Bede is definitely an aviation, I guess, pioneer, really. Yeah. That's, that's probably what you'd best know him for. But this was his uh, his one shot at, at building a, a car. And and the vehicle that he chose to build looks like a plane, which says a lot about him. Uh, I have I have a question though. So um, I can't remember the year of that Coors beer advertisement again, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get it out to you guys um, when when I hunt it down. Uh, but I would really have liked to see this car in a movie. As a matter of fact, I've been watching more and more movies now. Oh, really? Yeah, and. Uh, I am kind of in a weird embarrassment of riches because, you know, I subscribe to Netflix Instant. Sure. So I've got so many things to watch. But you know me, man. Um, if I'm watching something like that, I would like some amazing cars to be involved or at least some vehicles. Uh, so what do you got for me? You got any recommendations? Well, I don't have anything with a car this week, Ben, but I okay. got something with a vehicle that I think a lot of our listeners will be uh, pretty intrigued by. And I don't think I'm giving anything away here when I say that uh, this one has uh, somewhat happy ending to it. I guess we could maybe put it that way. All right, all right. This is uh, this is called uh, the Search for Kennedy's PT109, and it's pretty old. It's from about 2002, so you know it's it's getting up. It's about 12 years old at this point. So I'm not giving, like I said, I'm not giving anything away and saying we know what happened with this story. I won't, I won't, <laughs> I won't say any more than that. But um, again, released in 2002, it's just a 60 minute piece. Uh, but it's it's about the the guy Dr. Robert Ballard, who was uh, the guy that is famous for discovering the you know the watery remains of the Titanic. Um, so you know that this guy is a you know a great underwater um, expedition leader, a yeah. searcher. You know, yeah. Um, he was looking for the wreck of John F. Kennedy's legendary World War II patrol torpedo boat um, in this intriguing documentary. So you know, patrol torpedo boat. That's the PT one hundred nine part. Um, the documentary includes some compelling wartime footage and eyewitness accounts of Kennedy's heroism aboard the ill-fated ship that was cut in half by a Japanese destroyer in the murky waters off the Solomon Islands. Wow. So, um, you know, it was a, a tough one to find, but um, I guess, well, if you read about this, you'll find out exactly what happened. But it's an interesting documentary to watch. I've seen part of it already. haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah. But um, I'm kind of interested in watching the wrap-up of it. Uh, I love this kind of hunting, this sort of real-life Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. explorer, deep-sea diving, treasure expedition stuff. So I am in, my friend. And you can be in, too. But wait, Scott and Ben, you might be saying, I can't be in. I don't have Netflix what am I, Daddy Warbucks from Annie? I don't know if you are or not, but I do know that just from knowing Scott and I, you can check out Netflix for 30 days for, what, was it $10, Scott? No, is it, is it 100 bucks? No, uh, no, it's was it, uh, what was $5. It? Go lower, you're getting I, warmer. I $1.99. I think it's free. Free? Yep. Hang on a second, let me check my notes. Check your notes. It is free. A 30-day Free trial membership, which is, uh, that's remarkable, Ben. I thought it was like a hundred bucks, but it's free. 30 day free trial membership. All you have to do is go to netflix.com slash car stuff, mm-hmm. download as many of these as you want. You know, it doesn't have to be the, uh, the search for Kennedy's PT 109, but that's a cool documentary to watch. We recommend so many different. We movies. have a huge list. Oh, a gigantic list. In fact, it's, it's getting difficult to find new movies that we haven't recommended that have cars in them. Uh, but the Netflix offerings keep growing and there are, 
Um, yeah, we do recommend some stuff with trains or with Zeppelins before, but uh, believe us, guys, uh, this stuff is worth your time, and they're adding new titles every day. Titles are subject to availability, but, Scott, uh, we check these out before we go on air with them. That one right there, all you have to do is push the play button. And we had somebody actually on our Facebook recently who wrote in to ask for a list of some of this stuff. So if you're listening, I'm going to I'm gonna touch base with you and send that to you personally. Uh, we can't read the list on air. It's too long. That is a significant list to read. There's no way we could do that. It would There's take an no entire way. episode. There would take an entire episode, even if we were as fast as number seven on our list. Uh, number seven, which is a quick one. This was the uh, 1970 Mercury Cyclone Spoiler 2 Long Nose. Long Nose. Now, that is a long, long <laughs> title for a vehicle. But what it is, Ben, this is a this is a NASCAR prototype vehicle. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so obscure, because there's very, very few of these. And, and there's an interesting story that goes along with this one. I dug pretty deep into this one. Yeah. I'll tell you all about it. But there's a photo on the Jalopnik article of this vehicle, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about here when – or what they're talking about, I guess, when – they say that it was it was um, the the original intent of this vehicle right. was to compete with the Plymouth Superbird of the day, because mm-hmm. you know, the Superbird was just blowing it away on the NASCAR track in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and uh, and Ford was thinking, well, we got to do something to compete with this, and Mercury, <laughs> Mercury was actually the division that they wanted to do this with, yeah, and the Cyclone, the, the this Mercury Cyclone vehicle that they came up with, which is a, a specific Cyclone, uh, this again the Spoiler Two Long Nose Edition. This one is uh, is what they came up with to compete with those superbirds. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick 
and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it's got a 429 cubic inch V8, uh, and it's it's a mean looking vehicle. It's a um, it's also uh, what what's it called when they they have to build just a, a enough pro, uh, oh. production uh, Homologa- homologation. Yeah, homologation special, I guess, is what we could call it, right? Right. But but the problem with that, Ben, and this is where the history comes in. Now, the original rules, if you remember this right, was uh, was the initial. I guess the initial rules from NASCAR yeah. right around that time. They had just changed the homologation rules from 500 vehicles up to 3,000 vehicles. So yeah. Mercury was in a position where they would have had to build at least 3,000 of these. Now, I guess, I don't know, if you, you can't really call it good news because, uh, you know, the, the bad news is that Ford pulled out of racing in the early 1970s. And, you know, this is all amid the uh, the fuel crisis that was happening. Right, right then, yeah. Right? And so Mercury never got a, got a chance to produce these vehicles. I mean, so the, the prototypes are really all that exist now. They built two of these Cyclone Spoiler 2 vehicles. They built two of them. Only one of them survives, and that's the one that's in this photograph here. Uh-huh. Um, there's kind of an interesting story around that one, too, Ben, because um, that one, I guess, was somehow, it somehow ended up in the hands of Larry Shenouda. And Larry Shenouda was the guy from General Motors that's famous for designing the Corvette. Yeah. And I don't know what Larry was doing at the time. I don't know if he had moved it, you know, to another... Uh-huh. If he had moved to Ford, Mercury, whatever was going on, I'm going to have to dig into Larry Shenouda again to remember what, what he was doing. But it was given to him, and then later, I guess he had given that to somebody else as a gift. He had gifted the car to somebody, and when they found this vehicle, it was in a, uh, it was in a, I guess, a muddy chicken coop somewhere in Indiana, just kind of, <laughs> just kind of rotting away, or it was, uh, um, I guess, sinking into the mud. You know, it was just a, a disaster vehicle when they found it. But uh, someone recognized what it was, rescued it, you know, s- scooped it up, and said, you know, let's, uh, let's restore this thing back to where it should be. Because it's it's one of a kind. This is the only one out there. Yeah, and it's got a history. I mean, it was given, it was gifted by Larry Shenouda to to whoever this was. Um, they also had another vehicle that uh, that kind of goes along with this one. Um, and I didn't mean to you know stop you if you've been more about the uh, oh no, about no. The spoiler too. Go for it. But there's another vehicle. If you want to look into a separate vehicle that's uh, right around the same time that was another um, prototype vehicle for NASCAR, there's something called the 1970 Ford Torino King Cobra. And I guess four of those were built, and only three are known to exist today. So the the uh, the 1970 Ford Torino King Cobra is another one to look up, and uh, you won't be upset by what you find because <laughs> it's a it's a really cool looking car as well. So these these NASCAR prototype one off type vehicles that were built by the factory, yeah, are pretty unusual and and definitely worth your time to look up. Yes, and now we get to what I, I think will probably be our last car for part one. What yeah, do you think? Yeah, I think because uh, it looks like we're we're at about a half an hour, Ben, and we've talked about this already. So let's uh, let's split it up into two. How about that? That sounds fantastic because I 
you know I hate when we have to rush through the really cool stuff, which usually happens at the end. So a cliffhanger for the top five, really. Yeah, a cliffhanger for the top five. But we've we've talked about so far in just a few brief minutes. We've talked about some really weird cars, some really amazing cars, the 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 highs and the weirds. Uh, now let's talk about one of the lows. Yeah, this is one that was a little bit upsetting to uh, well. To the company itself, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, all right. Uh, all right. So, um, without telling you the name of the car yet, uh, let's see, listeners, if you can just guess, uh, we'll phrase as a trivia question. Uh, which car was so bad that when the head of the car company drove it for the first time, he was scared? For his life. Yeah, he thought it was going to fall apart when he took it out for a weekend drive. Okay, if you guessed the 1956 Volvo P1 900, then you are correct. Yeah, yep. Also called the Volvo Sport. Um, I think it's the P, I think most people just say P1900, I think, when they yeah, refer to it. But it's a, but it is an obscure car, Ben. I mean, it is one that uh, you won't find very many of. There's um, very few of these things that were actually built. One of my friends, when I was researching this, by the way, yeah. called it, uh, he said, oh, you mean the Volvo POS 900, oh, which man. I'm messing up the name. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This is a fiberglass-bodied roadster that, mm. uh, that came about when, I guess, the uh, the head of Volvo had been had made a trip to the United States, and the, the founder of Volvo, actually, not just the head of Volvo, but the founder of Volvo, because we're going back to the early 1950s here. Yeah. Um, he had he'd been on a trip to the United States and he spotted a brand new Corvette, you know, cause Corvettes were new at the time since what, 1953. Right. And, uh, he decided, Hey, you know what? I've got a car company. Let's build something like that. Cause people are going crazy over the new Corvette <laughs> over there in the States. Let's do something like that over here in Sweden and, uh, and make a fortune on this thing. And so that's what he went about doing. Oh, however, he didn't quite have the formula right because, you know, he's got this fiberglass bodied roadster and you know, Volvo is mainly known for safety, I think, at this point. Right. Um, maybe not so back then, but I think that they were a solid car. I mean, they always built a, a high quality vehicle right from the very beginning. And, uh, this unfortunately was just not one of those cases and they, they did, you know, stop it before it really happened. But, um, this thing had a 1.4 liter, four cylinder, 70 horsepower engine. I so, 70 horsepower. So right away, you know that this thing is a bit underpowered if he's going for the, uh, the Corvette market, I guess, right? Right. Um, three speed manual transmission, which isn't all that unusual for the time, but it also borrowed a lot of parts from something that they called the, the Volvo PV444, which was a solid car. That was a, a decent car, a small car, but, um, I, I actually like the, the PV444. And there's another one, I think it was called the, um, oh, what is it, the PV544. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's the 1800. 1800, that's right. And that was a more successful vehicle, really. Mm-hmm. The, the 1800 um, was actually, well, I said it, it was already a success vehicle, successful vehicle. But the, uh, the 1900, complete failure in a lot of ways because they designed this two-door, four-passenger, kind of a fastback design. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Volvo's first unibody car which was, uh, I guess, significant in some way, really. But yeah. there was very low demand for this thing. And the problem was the build quality just wasn't there. For whatever reason, they just couldn't get the design right on this whole thing. Um, and it was just not up to Volvo standards. They, they realized that, you know, early on, this thing isn't going to cut it. We're not going to be able to, to produce this and keep our company name on it and uh, and still keep our heads up high. Right. And this shows us, I think there's a moral here, a bit of a cautionary tale. Uh, not all cars are obscure because they were crazily high-priced and ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this car has been described in various test drives in some very colorful ways. Um, I think in the Jalopnik article, we have one reviewer say it's like driving a 444 that someone beat with a stick. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, oh, and excuse me, a horrible stick. A horrible stick. Yeah, someone beat that thing with an ugly stick. And so, <laughs> so okay. The the idea though is that you know this um, you know the head of the company takes it on like a fishing weekend or something up into the woods, and it, yeah. the car the car is already in production. Ben, they're yeah. already building this car, and he takes it on this trip, and he decides like. I was so scared that I pulled over to the side of the road. I thought it was going to fall apart on me. And that it was, you know, it was so loose and it just didn't feel right. It wasn't yeah. a typical Volvo production vehicle. And he said, you know, I thought it was going to fall apart, but it's already in production. He immediately stopped production. And there were only something like 68 cars that were ever produced on this whole thing. So they had the whole thing set up to produce. Mm-hmm. They built 68 vehicles, and that's it. And most of those vehicles that were produced are long gone. Yeah, yeah. Not many of them exist still today. So if you see one, if you find one, you know, in a in a in an auto graveyard somewhere, you know, scoop yeah. it up because it's a rare piece of history. But more than likely, you're going to find them in museums and just, uh, you know, where they're safe, where they're parked, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's the only way to put it, really. I mean, according to this, I mean, I know that for a while the the, the thought was, Make things really loose. So you go over, um, you know, like some of the early sports cars in America, like even Corvettes sure. and things like yeah. that. They were pretty loose. That's you'd true. Feel, you'd feel a lot of uh, there's you know, give a lot of motion. Yeah, give. I guess it was, in a, but it was give in the design of the vehicle intentionally. So you go over a train track and you'd think that the thing was going to, you know, fall apart. Right. Maybe that's what he was feeling when he when he, when they put this thing together. They they designed it with more give than he was used to. Yeah, that was going to be my question for you because it's something that I couldn't quite figure out especially given the modern understanding of Volvo, the mm-hmm. reputation that they've earned, they've mm-hmm. built it uh, for safety. It, it seems, um, it seems extraordinary to talk about Volvo and say low quality build, you know, in the mm-hmm. same sentence like that. I'm uh, glad that they, they nipped this one in the butt. Yeah. And they, got it, they got it early on. So there were only 68 cars produced. And they said, you know, that's it. We can't have, it can't have our company name on this. And that shows, uh, that shows some integrity. Yeah. But that's you, awesome. You agree? I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think so, too. I think it was a stand-up move on his part. And uh, for this, I think this is going to be the almost end of our list. We are in a bit of a cliffhanger, and we'll come back in our next episode. Yeah, I promise you we've got five really great ones coming up in the oh, next yeah. episode. They're oh, really, man. There's some really good ones here. Uh, we kind of saved the best ones. Uh, but before we go, Scott, what do you think about some listener mail? Let's do it. Okay, all right, okay. Uh, Graham B. from Vancouver, B.C. writes to us to say, Hey, guys, I read an article a couple months ago that relates to your latest podcast. This was just after Car Trends, I think. Okay. Uh, Graham said the article cites a study saying that car colors follow the general economy, and blander colors like grays or whites are more popular during downtimes in the economy, and brighter, more saturated colors are more popular during recovery years and high points in the economy. Mm, interesting. And I think I responded to this one, didn't mm-hmm. I? Yeah. I think I wrote back something like uh, I'd read a lot of studies that kind of match this in that, uh, you know, but most of them have to do with fashion. A lot of them don't really focus on auto trends when they think, when you think about the economy. Right. I mean, sure, people hold on to cars longer. And you think about, you know, people where the average age of a vehicle on the road is something like 10 years at this point, which is, uh, that's pretty old for vehicles. Sure, yeah. Especially when you see how many new cars are being built every year. Yeah. How many are on new car lots. Where are all these old used cars that, that they claim are out there? Because, I mean, if the <laughs> average age is 10 years, yeah. that means, can you imagine how many used cars are out there that are 10 years old? 
We uh, incredible the, number. We have a lot of cars. But but I think that the fashion thing that we that I replied with was, mm-hmm. you know, you often see it like the the hem of women's skirts or lipstick colors, things right. like that. Yeah, uh, the hems of women's skirts tend to go. Is it up with the economy? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there there's some really cool things that we'd like to recommend as well. Um, the guys over at Freakonomics have some really interesting insights to this. Um, Graham, I thought that was a fascinating thing to say. Uh, Graham goes on to say, in regards to transmissions getting more gears, I test drove a 2014 Porsche Cayman S with the 7-speed PDK for a morning last September. Even the 7-speed makes for a very smooth ride compared to a 6-speed, although being Porsche, they probably could have had a 2-speed, and I would have been impressed. Very nice. I love the Cayman S, and I think I even replied that as well, because uh, the Cayman S is just such a cool-looking car. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, it'd be a fun one to test drive, and I don't think it'll be an obscure one either. No, no, um, I don't think so. Yeah, plenty of those produced. <laughs> All right, so we are going to go ahead and uh, mosey on out of here. Stay tuned for our next episode. In the meantime, tell us about your favorite obscure cars. You can tell us on Facebook. You can tell us on Twitter. We have a website, CarStuffShow.com. Please do check it out and go ahead and send us an email if you're uh, if you're feeling up to it our address is carstuff at discovery.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com let us know what you think send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com this episode brought to you by 20th century studios kingdom of the planet of the apes Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.